This is Catalog and Cocktails. Presented by Data.World. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to Catalog and Cocktails. It's your honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand, presented by Data.World. I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd, product guy, customer guy at Data.World, joined by Juan Cicada. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicada. I'm the principal scientist of Data.World. And as always, it's a pleasure to take a break. Middle of the week, end of the day. And uh, the honest, no BS thing here right now is that we are live in London, but you're not actually seeing a recording because we're going to be recording this from the place that we were, but the Wi-Fi sucks. But this is really just to show you that we really are on the road. We're doing this, and this is the first time it's ever happened. Yes. But you're, we're still going to be uh, streaming this live, pre-recorded anyways. Yep. But we are in London. Why we're in London? Because uh, we were at Gartner at Data Analytics, and this it's been a while since we've actually been a show together in person with the guest. Yes. Our guest today is Ben Clinch. From BT Group. Welcome, Ben. How are you doing? I am. I am having a great day. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us here. <laughs> Glad to have you here. No, so today we're gonna. I mean, we're coming from Gardner. A bunch of stuff going on right now. But hey, first of all, let's tell and toast. What are we uh, toasting and what are we uh, drinking here today? Yeah. So this is. Uh, so we're at the Cinnamon Club uh, in uh, Westminster, and uh, we are drinking some delicious cocktails here from Tejas. And I'll tell you what they are. So first of all, we got the Westminster Gin and Tonic. That's the oh one that God. you're drinking. It's got Monkey 47 Rosemary and Black Olive Tonic in it. So very interesting there. We have a delicious Dark and Stormy. Always That's a good classic, it. right? <laughs> um, and then I've got a Lime Leaf Collins with Bombay Sapphire Gym Lime Leaf Lime and Soda. So we got some fancy cocktails going on so here. So today is truly a cataloging cocktail. Truly <laughs> cataloging <laughs> cocktails. <laughs> All right, well, look, cheers. Cheers yeah. to like doing this in person finally yeah. and like having more of this stuff. So, um, warm up question we got today from producer: What's your favorite London trend food that is hard to get in the United States? So I'm thinking steak and kidney pie. Mm. <laughs> okay. Did you get that? Yeah, I don't. Well, kidney did, pie? No, that's a yeah. that's a hard one to go do. It's fantastic. In the, in the States, yeah. It is Maybe really with good. Some Guinness. In it, that know, is my ale. Yeah. That <laughs> we're having a nice dinner after this, but kind of that sounds great right now. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> oh, that's a hard yeah, question yeah. to answer because, like, I, I honestly haven't explored enough British food. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know what? I wish there was fish and chips a little closer to where I live. There's nothing uh, nearby there, so you know that's a relatively speaking difficult thing for me to get. Yeah. Well, they get trying to. It is just not a London tour. It's a European. It's like just. You can go out and walk around the water and just sit down and have a pint. Like that's something I really enjoy, mm. and not here in London, but also in other places in Europe. Uh, which is not a not an easy, always an easy thing to do in the United States. So. Yeah. But all right, kick it off, Ben. Honest, no BS. Automating data governance is it really possible or not? Absolutely, and increasingly so. So. Um, Huge amounts of, of opportunities uh, around uh, active metadata and semantic discovery of data, um, which are uh, progressing at pace. So each week, uh, there seems to be more opportunity to be able to automate this further. But I, th I think it's a, it's a gradual, for most organizations, it's a gradual thing that you need to adopt iteratively. So, so let's go back into like data governance is something that we've been talking about. I mean, now it's such a big thing, right? But mm. 
when does all start? Okay, you have you you your, your yeah. background. You have I mean you're in telecommunications now, but your background has been finance. And mm-hmm. so give us your 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 your, your drive through history yeah. here. Fantastic. So obviously data has been very important in in the te- technology industry for for a very very long time, but it really reached maturity after the subprime issues. Mm. Um, so the, the 2008. Uh, 2008, and collapse of Lehman's and, and some of the regulators uh, were saying to the banks, um, we, we need to have greater confidence in the data that you're sending us um, so that we can, and, and also measuring exposure to other organizations, and, and in this case, Lehman's. Um, and there was a creation of uh, regulation called BCBS 239, uh, the mm-hmm. Basel Committee for Banking Standards. They put together this regulation effectively uh, requiring uh, the financial services to be able to demonstrate the data quality of, of their data, the provenance, where it came from within the organization and how it could be relied upon. Um, and that really was an incredible piece of, of regulation because it really forced a level of thinking and rigor around that data that hitherto not really had a proper discipline around it and some amazing advances in that space during that time. Um, So much so that financial services have really sort of set a bar uh, associated with some of the the, the best practices. um, So really the the financial institutions when BCBS or BCB uh, uh, 239, right? When that came into a place where um, all of a sudden innovation just had to accelerate massively in terms of how are we going to keep track of this? Are we on data infrastructure that's going to let us do these things? Are we auditing everything, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely. Well, interestingly, innovation didn't necessarily catch up as quickly as it, it could have. So, so there was an awful lot of... Um, this is an interesting point. <laughs> it's like, well, that means that we should have been automating this uh, 15 years ago, whatever, but... Absolutely. We're not there yet, and now it's the moment. So was the initial response very manual in nature? Very manual. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes that's how you have to start. So to be able to automate something, you have to understand what you're trying to achieve. And, and so with, with um, a lot of the data management principles that were uh, established then around uh, good uh, stewardship or ownership of data, mm-hmm. um, where it was sourced from, how it was described, was often highly manual and what we would call very steward-led, mm. um, and that was that was okay to some degree um, because, particularly in the financial services, by definition, banks have a lot of money, and so they could throw bodies at problems. and And actually, also the scope of the data wasn't always that huge because it was it was very much focused on the regulatory reporting data that was being shared with the regulators and so people would start with that mm-hmm. and so that meant that, that the the scope of the data was was manageable but actually increasingly what we're seeing is is as that best practice is going out to other industries mm-hmm. who um, uh, maybe aren't as willing to, to do these things as manually as the banks previously had um, there's a much bigger push towards how can we do this you know, win with technology how can mm-hmm. we how can we really automate this and innovate as you say so um, and that's really accelerating the banks are now becoming great adopters of that technology as well but it's it, it's really moving uh, pace in terms of the automation there's some exciting things that I'm sure we'll discuss yeah no that, that's super interesting um, so as, as before we leave kind of the history of things right so you kind of mentioned about 
you know, some of the regulation that came into the financial industry. Is there anything else that you would kind of call out from a historical standpoint that you think has really driven a lot of the push for governance and, and then now, you know, the push for automation? Well, absolutely. So one, I think accountability was, was really important. So understanding who actually was responsible for that data and, and helping uh, organizations create a set of principles associated with that. Mm. But actually, interestingly, there are, there are some, some of the regulators, in, particularly in the commodity space, have started to describe their regulation as code. Mm. Oh, so it's a, this, is a two -way, this is now a two-way street. Yes. And these are, I mean, obviously regulators want to make uh, their regulation as easy, as easy to follow as possible. I mean, initially some of the guidance was fairly open-ended and open to interpretation. The more that um, regulators can be specific around that, the easier it is for, for organizations to innovate and, and, and scale. So that's a really interesting innovation. That is super interesting. And as regulation gets more like code, and it becomes more explicit versus vague, right? That probably increases the opportunity for automation now because now it, you're, you're automating towards something very specific. Yes, because otherwise each, each organization has to almost codify its interpretation of um, a, a, a rule, mm -hmm. uh, often in, in plain English. And where interpretation is is um, open-ended or ambiguous, then there's there's an opportunity for people to misinterpret or misapply. So um, when when it's very specific, then you can actually say oh, an example that I often use is um, if, if German citizen data is only allowed to be accessible from Germany, mm -hmm. um, we would codify that from a perspective of if this is German citizen data, then it must be stored and only accessible in Germany according to X regulation. So you've actually got an if this, then that statement mm -hmm. according to, which gives traceability back to the original regulation. Um, yeah. So basically almost every rule which is codified actually has its lineage back to why it's reason for its own existence. And you can see all oh, these rules are at the end. It's like, well, I have this rule, which I'm already using for some particular regulation. By the way, it, it addresses some other regulations that have the same either the same rule or very similar rules and so forth, you can do that. That's it, and as the regulation changes, then you actually have traceability, you can actually, because regulation always evolves, right? Mm. And that's cool, that's it, that's, uh, um, requirements change. And so you have that flexibility, you can trace it back, you can say these, these rules will now be impacted, and updated as a result so of that. What's fascinating about this is that we're like now at a meta-meta level, right? We talk about like providence, about where data comes from, but here is like, I want to have the providence of where all these regulations, these rules come from, the things that we're trying to go automate, saying, well, this is exists for this reason, right? And and, and, and how can we reuse that too, and mm -hmm. so forth. Absolutely. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, you know, also on this uh, sort of regulatory front, um, for, for some of our listeners and listeners that aren't as familiar with like what the regulations are really driving, like you mentioned about provenance, you mentioned yes. about um, sort of auditing. Like, yeah. what are, what are the different activities that uh, an organization has to do to support you know these regulations? But then there's probably a little bit of a broader umbrella of just governance in general. Like, what are the, what are the different activities and tasks that that a, that an organization has to do, and and, and why? Look, fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so there are. A number of, of them, I guess, starting with privacy. Mm. Um, obviously, it's really important to, to treat people's data with due care and respect, ensuring that um, uh, you're making the most out of that data to provide good services for them, of course. 
but um, but also making sure that you're maintaining their privacy. So um, uh, a, a key thing in Europe, for example, is, is the GDPR, um, which is a key regulation. I mean, one of the, for example, one aspect is is um, a thing called Article 30, where organisations um, are required to be able to demonstrate where data is coming from and going to with regards to personally identifiable um, information, who's processing that in what location and for what purpose, mm -hmm. and, and, and that that's defensible and proportionate. Also things like retention and archival of, of data, so people are only keeping data for a specific justifiable business purpose for as long as, as is, um, is justifiable. But also it, uh, that they're deleting that uh, um, and and when uh, it, it's no longer justified, but also um, so that uh, when people request the right to be forgotten, uh, their data is deleted. That's an important uh, principle um, in terms of privacy, and also that people can ask, you know, what data is being um, stored about them, so that they they have subject access requests. So there's all these questions that that. I mean, basically, if you look at these these regulations and, and, and what we're trying to govern the data for, they're, they're effectively a set of questions, queries that we're trying to go answer, yes. and those things should be automatic, right? I Absolutely. Mean, so if we think about this just as like, well, look, if this policy, this the policy I have to go uh, address is really a question, and that question is a query, then if you think about it that way, it's like, we're just kind of writing a query over data. Like, well, why would I even think this is a manual thing? This is just codify it, press a button, answer there, we're done. We're so I think that's 100%. kind of the mentality we need to get to. And so, but but right now that whole process. Imagine trying to go <laughs> resolve a question right now where you don't have a database that you're going to go run your query. I mean, today right. we have these issues with that I'm trying to integrate data, which is still a problem here about automating, but. We got to see the problem like this. It's like it can't be that complicated. We can't think about it. It should be that complicated. Hundred uh, percent right. And actually, as you codify this stuff, you can you can then say, well, look, we now know the metadata that we've got to be collecting. So it's it's it provides a framework in which you can then start to you know we're we're taking science and engineering kind of best practices towards uh, applying uh, effectively the law um, in this instance. Um, so that you, can, you say, okay, we need to know that this is German citizen data. We need to know the, the server location. We need to know the location of anybody who's trying to access this. And then we can apply business rules over the top of it um, that, that uh, ensure that you're, you're enforcing compliance and detecting any, any potential anomalies associated with it. But the other, I mean, we're talking about the defensive aspect there as well. I mean, the, the same goes for the offensive data management approach which is the value of data if we know that certain types of data is valuable for a particular business process or business capability then we know if we can detect that and we can still codify that if this is this type of data then it is valuable for X business capability according to um, the owner of that business mm -hmm. capability for example then you can then say okay we now need to semantically discover that information and that's and from my perspective the more that we can understand the value and the context of data, whether it's regulatory or privacy driven mm -hmm. or value driven, it's actually very similar in terms of the way you codify it and scale that. Mm. The, key, the key word for me here has been codify. <laughs> That's what we need to, I mean, we can't automate what we can't read basically from a machine pers perspective, so we need to be able mm. to kind of 
Not kind of. We need to be able to codify it. And, 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 so we can't just trust that uh, Chat GPT will solve it for us, right? It will be. It will probably it help. help, right? Uh, but no, <laughs> it won't solve it on its own, right? Well, and, and and the codification and the metadata seem like they're both. Absolutely. And look, I don't want to underplay. Large language models can do a huge amount to help with this. Mm. But, but actually, the, the, for me, the core is, first of all, organizing your metadata into an information model. Um, and uh, so, we, you know, we talked a little bit about the metadata as an example there. I see this as a continuum that is described as uh, a knowledge graph, effectively. Mm -hmm. So this is how you structure your data in such a way that is scalable. And, um, and then the business rules help you leverage that, that information. Yeah, so, I mean, this is definitely, uh, I mean, you're singing here to the choir, you're preaching to the <laughs> choir here, right? I mean, at least to me, but, um, but I think the codification is really about, let, let's put this in a structured way that the machines can understand it. Yes. And then it's all about linking them together. We're just like, well, I have, even I have this rule, this policy, it's related to some other policy, to some regulation. Like now you start making those relationships, hey, this looks like a graph, right? So I think effectively what we're seeing right now is that knowledge graphs are, are the way of being able to codify the data, the metadata, these policies all together. And, and, and we were talking on our way over here. We're like, on, on our ride over here, it's like we were having another podcast that we should have been recording that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but I was telling you, it's Uber like, sessions, right? Yeah. <laughs> the VIP <laughs> episode. Yeah, we, can, we should have one of those too, yeah. Um, but it was, it was, I was telling like, I have, I have been talking to Gardner for almost like 10 years saying, hey, semantics, and even before Knowledge Graph was the thing and doing that. And it's like, mm. it's now getting there and it's really, really cool I, yes. cool is the word i mean to go when i go talk to people about knowledge graphs the, the there's less amount of eyes staring at me like what do you mean like no people either now get it or they're like yeah i've been hearing it all the time i need to get this more explaining more and there's less there's still people like eh, i don't know but mm. it, it's really been decreasing and this is really exciting i mean that's my perspective i but you absolutely agree mm. and actually i mean instantly so i was uh, i was a relational data guy um um uh, a while back and as soon as I, I I was educated around knowledge graph I instantly saw the value but mm. but that's because I've, I've lived and breathed data for a very long time um, now you know going to Gartner this week um, there has been so much talk about the knowledge graph being the center of a data fabric mm. um, and and it's so refreshing and actually one of all, Having said that, though, I still think there's a lot of opportunity for, for better training and better access to this information. I'm a big proponent of, of um, a number of different um, courses and books that can get people up to speed. Hmm. But actually, I set up a growth guild at, at, at BT, where I currently work with 200 members now. So we meet regularly. We talk to uh, semantic experts, and we, we explore different um, graph technologies. We use graph quite a lot. Um, because effectively a, a network which is a, you know a major part of our proposition is a physical graph I mm -hmm. mean it's, it's literally a graph instantiated by nodes and edges mm -hmm. that, that, that you can you can literally touch yeah <laughs> you, you have you have graph operating at a few different levels right yes. there's sort of the the, the the network the graph right of, uh, of the actual infrastructure and things like that right and then you have more of your conceptual graph and your governance graph and things like that absolutely mm. that's exactly right and it is i 
it was more successful than even I, I expected, to be honest. Mm. I, you know, that people are hungry to learn about this. And actually, you know, some of the things that we've been exploring is how you explain graph to people in a way that is instantly accessible. Mm. And so, you know, uh, there's a couple of different examples. One is, you know, everybody gets mind maps. And, and in many ways, a graph is a kind of a more rigorous mind map mm -hmm. in that sense. Um, the other thing is um, trying to explain to people the importance of an information model. So actually, you know, graph is, uh, you know, or the ontology within a graph and taxonomy is effectively a data model. And for a, for a long time, um, vendors around data lakes and, and other sort of uh, NoSQL kind of structures were saying, you don't need a data model anymore. So, uh, and, and what that really resulted in was people putting data into lakes that they couldn't understand, or that data scientists, really skilled data scientists, were spending all of their time effectively becoming data janitors, trying to work out and clean the data and, and, and reorganize it, but when it could have been done once using a schema or an... Uh, <sighs> So I'm sure you're familiar with this. <laughs> I think all I think by now people are realizing that that the pendulum is swinging the, in the, the back pendulum is swinging the, the again, right? Yeah. It's like uh, I always talk about the 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 the, the types of, of the, the, the ordinary truths and the profound truths, and a, a nor, an ordinary truth is one that whose opposite is a falsehood. Yeah. So, oh, database systems need to be faster. Well, of course, because if I negate it, it needs to be slower. That's dumb. That so doesn't that's make small, sense. Right? So it's an ordinary yeah. truth. Yeah. But a profound truth is one that whose opposite is also a profound truth. Yes. So you could say database systems need to have very strong, uh, well-defined schemas. Well, the opposite is database systems do not need to have well-defined schemas. Well, that's what we've been doing for the last... That, we had that the pendulum on one side, right? that was a whole NoSQL movement, and that yeah. was good, and now, now we're realizing. So I think the whole schemas and semantics around data is a profound thing that we can have, a profound truth that we can have this discussion. I 100% agree. And actually, you know, it doesn't have... We don't have to make it hard. Um, I mean, there, as we say, there's a lot of technologies that we mentioned earlier that can actually speed this stuff up. But, I mean, even now, talking across the industry... To people, people, some some of them are saying we don't need a data model. So I've, I've there's an analogy that I use mm -hmm. a lot, um, and I actually I, I spoke about it in Gartner yesterday, which was um, when trying to explain the importance of a data model to people who are unfamiliar with why that's important. Mm -hmm. um, I use the example of the org chart. Um, so. Of course, people are a very important asset in any business. It's, it, I mean, that's apparent to everyone. Mm -hmm. And everyone from the CEO to, to right the way down, everybody knows that where they sit in the org chart. It's the first thing you look up when you join, mm -hmm. a, join an organization. Who's my boss and who's my boss's boss, right? And Absolutely. And then um, how, how, how are we organized and um, mm -hmm. how do I contact or how do I locate other people within right. the organization? Um, what kind of uh, title do they have? What seniority do they have? Who pays for them? That cost There's a lot of context that is embedded in a in an org chart structure, right? Absolutely. And would you would would you ever hear somebody say, "Well, we don't need an org chart. You know, we don't need to organize our people." Um, or what's the return on investment on an org chart? Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I nobody's 
Why don't we wait wait until we get big enough and then then maybe we'll establish an org charity? (laughs) Well, yes. Actually, that is a a very small company. Yeah, which is justifiable. Exactly. (laughs) But that's when you realize there is none, but then it's a point in flips. Once you have more than 20 people or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So so this is, I love this this analogy you're doing, but let's go into the work that you've been doing with so many people around the EDM council and the CDMC, but this is something that yeah. So many people in the world have gotten together, companies, to develop all these data models so we don't reinvent the wheel. And so please You're tell us more about right. this. So one of the things that's really exciting, and I, you know, I, I volunteer at the EDM Council. I'm, I'm a certified trainer in DCAM and CDMC, so it's just a... <laughs> no, this, but I, I know we're a non-salesy <laughs> podcast, but anything about education, you're like, please go and sell it, it away. Yeah. Yes, so <laughs> this, please go sell. So DCAM... Uh, which stands for Data Management Capability Assessment Methodology is a framework that was developed by the EDM Council mm-hmm. primarily in response to BCBS 239. It was, it was heavily informed by um, the, the banks uh, initially and is now widely adopted by many regulators and, and many industries. There's a fantastic free benchmark report that you can see against different sectors around the world. Their maturity because um, against this, it's very objective. You can mm-hmm. measure how mature you are as an organization against objective measures. And it's, it's very much based on what you do, not how you do it. Recognizing that technology and processes and approaches change, mm-hmm. but actually the fundamentals of what you need to do or achieve can be measured. And so, you know, we use that, and, and, and I, I, as I say, I'm a, tr- a trainer in that. It's on version two at the moment, and there is actually going to be a version three uh, next uh, coming. So it's going to be developed later Mm. in the year. Nice. There's 360 members of the EDM Council, and they're huge multinationals often, um, uh, including all the hyperscalers uh, as well. So um, one of the other developments that you know that that actually I was I was involved in. I led a couple of the sub capabilities. There's a thing called the Cloud Data Management Capabilities, or CDMC. And, and this was uh, established by, well, I mean, just by sheer coincidence, I already knew um, a gentleman called Ollie Beige at the London Stock Exchange Group and, and Richard Paris, who mm-hmm. I'd worked with previously at UBS. And when they were working together, they were saying, you know, we really um, find that, that when we're interacting with hyperscalers about what our requirements are, we're, we're actually, there's not a standard. So we're, we're having to say the same kind of requirements separately to each hyperscaler. Mm. Why don't we explore the opportunity to be able to create the standard that everybody's, uh, you know, the, 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 and that's going to help the hyperscalers serve us and, and actually help people get value and manage down the risk of cloud. So they approached the EDM Council, who, who uh, you know, Mike Merritt and John Bottega and, and, and uh, uh, great leaders, they basically said, this is a great idea, let's, let's explore this. Now, it became a runaway success. There were 100 companies involved, 300 So this is basically defining all the metadata about all types of data sources, things that are going to be in the well, cloud. Well, yes, it does include that, actually. And that, okay. yeah, it's a very good point, but it's all data management practices and, and that you can objectively uh, measure and the automation thereof that means that the, the scale... In so the this goes back to what works. we were talking about er- earlier, is like this is now all these regulations or these rules, they'll codify that you know what this is. And we're having That's this it. Thing. And when you're at the hyperscaler kind of size, 
you're gonna, I mean, over a petabyte of data, you really can't throw bodies at this stuff. I mean, it's it's a bit of a simplification because it's probably complexity more than scale, but there's, a, there's sort of a, a general rule that that can apply. And actually, you hit on a really important point. So, as part of the CDMC development, we we built this um, information model, and and it was it was uh, soft launched. Um, so what does the information model consist of? What are the main concepts? Great. So it's an RDF. Uh, it's described in RDF, the resource description framework, um, as, as a, a true knowledge graph. And it, it brings together, uh, well, it started from the CDMC. So we, we took the entities out of the, the specification for the framework, and we, we started to map those as a graph. And then we mapped them against existing W3C standards like Ageria, DCAT, DQV, Provo. These are all sort of, um, I recommend looking these up if you're not, if, for the listeners who aren't familiar. These are established W3C standards that's, that are used uh, um, uh, around the world, but not, not always together. And this actually stitched those towards a really beautiful meta model, which is free to use. Um, and is scalable and, and is actually has documentation that describes how all of these things relate back to the, the original controls from the CDMC. Now, to me, that's an incredibly powerful tool because um, I've, been, I, I've talked to lots of people about using flexible data catalogs and, and how and, and that flexibility is really important, mm -hmm. I think. So I'm not necessarily saying people should be, have to be constrained by the information model. They should be able to extend. They don't know where to start. Yeah. You know? This is their starting point. Like, don't reinvent the stuff that we've done. So, yes. so we look at Egeria has been one of those kind of one standard around um, also about governance. And and, yeah. and then DCAT is a data catalog vocabulary that takes all the data sets and stuff. Uh, provenance is, uh, the Provo is all about provenance, right? So yeah. where things were derived from. So you'd be able to combine this to go define it's basically a metadata model that is the, the, the underpinning for any type of anything you need, a, any resource that you need to catalog and, That's and have absolutely. governance over it. It's almost, it's almost a blueprint for a digital twin in some regards. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not going to map out, for those unfamiliar, the, the domains. So if you have a billing domain, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of have domain-specific knowledge. This is, the, this is kind of like the framework that everything like that hangs off. And so you still need the main experts to be able to articulate what you need to do for, for billing. And but the great thing is there are lots of schemas out there as well that you can start from uh, when you're developing those. Or I always say with those, start from them. Don't mm -hmm. constrain yourself to somebody else's view of how your business works. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of folks aren't familiar with the amount of sort of prior art and pre-established schemas are out there for things like governance and, 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 and things like a cloud infrastructure and things like that. Like, yes. how do you go about, you know, whether it's through EDM Council or through other things, how do you go about educating folks about what's out there? In terms of the, the, the kind of uh, established structures? Yes. So yeah. the first thing really, honestly, is, is, is to get people trained. Um, mm. I think, for, first of all, one is get them trained in, in the particular cloud vendor that they're using the hyperscaler so that they understand what kind of databases they have and what kind of capabilities they have. I think also getting people to think in terms of cloud agnostic solutions. So I hear a lot about cloud native solutions mm -hmm. and I, I'm all for cloud native solutions but what, what it's often confused with is cloud specific solutions. Mm. So if you have a portability requirement like many of the financial services do, 
that you need to be able to demonstrate you can move from one cloud to another. Mm -hmm. If you have a cloud-specific solution, that's going to be an immediate constraint. So, so um, now that's not to say that something that is developed by one hyperscaler has to only work on their, their system. Some of them are designed to actually work in such a way that they can harvest metadata across mm -hmm. uh, different environments, including on-prem. And, and so I think one of the things I really encourage people to look at is the mm -hmm. interoperability of the tools that they're using. I mean, you can probably see a theme here. The interoperability or the flexibility associated with regulation changing, mm -hmm. the, the flexibility of the data model changing, because like an org chart, nobody says, well, when is the org chart done? Never going to finish. It's the same with a data model. It's a living, breathing thing yeah. that evolves with you. It's not a project. It's an ongoing capability. It's an ongoing asset, right? That's it. And so in the same way, your architecture should be interoperable. And, and that's why I embrace standards like RDF, where it actually allows a lot of different components to interact in a very consistent manner against a, an established standard. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so one of the questions I'm thinking is, when is it ever, when should I start? Like, do I have to get to some state to be, to be thinking about this? Or I'm like, because this is the things that I always talk about, the balance of being efficient and resilient. I'm like, I need to do these, fa these things fast, so I'm not going to go invest in doing all this stuff. But then later on, I am scaling, and I'm like, oh, I have all this debt. So what, is, what are your... What, what a fantastic question. So first of all, uh, you know, start now, <laughs> wherever you are on your journey. But, um, and how you go about that is, is, first of all, establishing what's important. So one of the things that's not often um, uh, underlined enough is, is understanding your business architecture. So what are you trying to achieve? Um, and codifying that again, preferably in, in machine-readable diagrams, for example. So having been an architect, we often, we often joke about drawing lines and boxes. But if those lines and boxes aren't described as code, then they, you can't measure your organization against that. So um, first of all, what, what are you trying to achieve as a business? What's your business strategy? What are your business outcomes? What business capabilities and processes support that? And therefore, the context of the data that you require. So who is, which business capabilities are producing data and which ones are consuming them? And if you can articulate that, again, by what we call declaring critical data, mm -hmm. um, it's critical for a purpose. Um, and that purpose could be regulation or regulatory reporting in the case of BCBS239, but it equally could be for great customer service or, or effective billing or revenue assurance and, and, and these types of activities. So that's start by understanding your business and the purpose for the data, and then you can prioritize because each of those business capabilities has a value that you can put money against. It might be defending revenue, it might be generating revenue, it might be saving money, it might mm -hmm. be managing risk. It might be um, a regulatory, and that could be regulatory risk, it could be reputational risk, etc. You can quantify these things, and then you can say, this is the priority for where we're going to start. Because mm -hmm. you start with the thing that's most important, and you build out from there. So, th th this, <laughs> hold on. I love how you, I mean, we always say, like, what is the business value? So, start with the business, understand what the business is. But what you should be doing, too, is that when you're doing that process, codify that understanding of it yes and then and, and, and that maybe is like right now we're focused on regulation we'll codify that regulation those policies you need to go do i love this codify is a keyword today mm -hmm. you wanted to follow up yeah so before we start to move into our 
coveted lightning round. Um, I do want to ask you uh, one more thing, and I want to bring it back to where we kind of started this whole conversation around automating governance. Yeah. And I want to ask you, as, as, you, as, as you look at what we need to accomplish from a governance standpoint, and you look at business organizational capability, and you also look at the technology that's available, wh what can you automate now? Right, so it's sort of a two-part question. Like, what can yes. you automate now that's a, that's worthwhile, and and can you also tell me what should you not be automating? Like, like what are people think? Like, think maybe you can automate, but mm, that's like we're not there yet. Yes. So that's a really good question. Um, I think some of the things you can automate now are are the rules and the rule um, and the business logic and the met and actually starting to detect. Um, metadata in a more scalable manner. So there are uh, capabilities out there, technology uh, capabilities that can help you identify some of that data that we defined as important for those business purposes. Mm -hmm. So you can say, we'll program at once, preferably. I mean, I'm a big fan of using integration pipelines as a means of actually sampling that and, 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 and tagging that data with these kind of semantic uh, meaning of that data, this metadata, so to speak. And um, there are so many different ways you can do that. You can start with something as simple as regex, which is the shape of the data, and, mm -hmm. and that gives you a hint. Well, just start simple. You don't need to do any sophisticated stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But then you can do something you know, as, as complicated as fingerprinting, which is effectively, I've seen these many data values before in a different data set that was already tagged, and therefore I can infer with a, a certain level of probability that it's most likely the same semantic meaning mm -hmm. uh, that I can tag it with. Mm -hmm. Now those tags will become, you know, perfect metadata to drive those business rules. But also, I mean, increasingly the ability, and, and we, we touched on it earlier, large language models are great at doing some of this stuff, but um, we're an early stage of that, and the ability to be able to make sure that those are monitored and, and uh, are giving the right values, that's a, a yeah. So then, to the other side of the question, what should you not be automating yet? What should we not be automating? Well, I think, well, for example, unattended semantic discovery, I think, is, is something that's still early days. I think you want to have a real sense of, of, of certainty associated with the probability of that. Mm. I think also... Um, so, I mean, that, that's something that we still need to go talk to people and figure out what this is. Exactly. Means. And automating data models. Now, we can augment and speed up data model no, data modeling using um, some really, I mean, large language models are perfect for that kind of stuff. But you want to make sure that that's only accelerating you because you don't want to outsource your understanding of your organization to, to a third party, in my view. Uh, I like that quote there. You don't want to outsource your understanding of your own organization. It would be like outsourcing your org chart. I, I, I you know, can you imagine somebody saying, I, I'm, Unfortunately, I some companies do that. Yeah. That might, again, I, well, we I, won't I, talk about I'm always operating at very huge scales. But yes, I, and, and you can get advice from other people. Yeah, 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 yeah get yeah, advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but and then this is how you see the, all, all these yeah. large language models is like productivity. It's also advice. They give input that you need to make final decisions. So this is a good segue, a good segue into our AI minute. So one minute to rant about AI, whatever you want. Ready, set, go. Fantastic. So AI is something I've really always been passionate about. So I did that at university, right? Back propagation neural networks and algorithms. And to some degree, I wish I'd done more of it if between now and then because it's really taken off. Um, what I would say is that, that, that these, are, these things are incredibly powerful and uh, augmenting what we do, but they are not something yet that we need to be 
overly scared of in terms of completely replacing people, or if we do, we need to be ready for the consequences associated with it, which is that it's incredibly powerful stuff. We need to be harnessing this for our benefit, but be mindful that it needs to be fed with good data. And if it's not fed with good data, which is all about the, the, the cataloging we're talking about and metadata, then don't be surprised if it doesn't give you the right answers. These, it's, we need to empower the LLMs with, with the knowledge and the context that we've been discussing today. Perfect. Beautiful great. timing. Garbage in, garbage out. That's it. That's it's it. Still, it's still it's all still true. All right. Yep. So let's head to our lightning round uh, presented by data.world and I'm going to kick it off first. So just quick yes or no, a little bit of context needed. But um, So does your metadata model have to be fully designed before you can start automating governance? No. But the more structure that you have in the meta model, the better. But right. So no. Okay. <laughs> so next question. Um, would you say that as regulations are, are codified and as things like the EDM Council, uh, you know, the work streams and the standards become more popularized, is governance now becoming mostly cookie cutter? Like, is it over 50% cookie cutter? No. And should I qualify that? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's it's in, it's moving in that direction for the for the, the, the mundane, mm -hmm. but actually the real opportunity is in the offensive data marketing, which is always linked to your business purpose, which is always unique to your organisation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the purpose is always unique. The purpose, yeah, that's unique. All right, next question: Is governance metadata a good place to start for your first knowledge graph? Yes. A lot of people are like doing knowledge well, graphs of the thing about your about your people about the right. Uh, okay, so I'm going to so, qualify that because yes. I'm, I'm very into data management. But actually, knowledge graphs are incredible for fraud management, for IT asset management, for network exactly. resilience. So um, uh, all of those are beautiful. Um, data management is also a great place to start. What I would say is all of those use cases should be coordinated in such a way that they're building out your enterprise knowledge model. So that so then that's do it with RDF or, or label property graphs, but something that you know are so going to don't do it in silos. Don't do it in, in silos because yeah. then you're building out your own more applications thing. that happen to be in a graph. I, right ideally, now. your knowledge graph is cohesive, and these things are coming together. Exactly yeah. right. People are kind of painting the picture for you, bit yeah. by bit, right? And mm. and while making money and 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 making business benefits from their in individual use cases built on graph. Final question, Tim. Should all data organizations aim to automate their governance? Yes. But well, augment. I don't. I think full automation. I'm a big fan of the context of metadata ops. So mm -hmm. this is some people who have the responsibility for ensuring that the automation is actually serving the purpose of the business. But yes, everyone should be striving for automation mm -hmm. around this to, to the extent that it is. Reasonable. Can I interpret that as so? When you say augment, keep humans in the loop. Yes. But automate as much as you can with that caveat. One hundred percent. Work smart with mm -hmm. technology. All right, Tim, takeaway time. This was an awesome conversation. I knew it would be. Um, so <laughs> some quick takeaways, because uh, I know we've got some delicious dinner coming up here shortly. Um, you can automate your governance, and you should. Yeah. Uh, and this is the direction that we're moving in as, as data organizations, as, uh, as governance uh, in general. Uh, and you mentioned that, you know, really, uh, 
semantic metadata is progressing and this is a gradual process, but it's, it's getting to a point where now we can automate a lot. Uh, and more on automation later in the takeaways, right? You started with the history. You said that you know in, in 2008, the collapse of Lehman's and the regulations that happened in the States, that happened here, here in the UK and, and across the world, uh, it really was kind of a trigger point to say, look, we, like, we can't just hope that you're gonna do the right things around data, we're gonna, we're gonna mandate it, right? Yes. Uh, and uh, the initial response by organizations, especially in the financial industry, because that's where it applied more, was pretty manual in nature. Stewards going in and doing a lot of work in spreadsheets or databases and things like that, right? Of course, now we know there's technology that's kind of emerged to, to help solve a lot of this, but um, you know, um, uh, the scope initially was, was semi-manageable because it was a very focused set of processes and data, but data's gotten more complicated, governance has gotten more complicated, now just not just financial institutions want to do governance, so it's becoming a bigger, a bigger thing, right? Um, to automate, you probably need to start manually, figure out what you need to achieve, but you want to try to automate from there. You mentioned accountability is important. You uh, mentioned also that um, regulators are really starting to push more towards regulation as code. Uh, and this is a good thing for everyone because as we codify, it means it's going to be really easy to interpret. It becomes more explicit, right? If this data is related to a German citizen, then yada, 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 right? And, and that's going to make things a lot clearer for everyone, a lot less vague, a lot less open to interpretation. Um, and you mentioned that especially things like data privacy, GDPR, these are a lot of the, the, the emphasis of how kind of governance is focused these days, and, and we talked through different aspects there. And before I pass it to Juan, you started to talk a little bit about the path to automation, which is you kind of have to see automation as answering a query. Um, as things become more codified, then we can use the metadata to actually drive the automations around governance or regulation. And you should really think about organizing your metadata into an information model. And that information model should be a knowledge graph. Yes. Should be RDF. With that, over yeah. to you, Juan. Well, I think the key word here, and I've said it before, it's codify. Then we need to have that in a, on a t-shirt, like codify, <laughs> right? Codify, and then you're coding this, and you're coding that. Those things are linked together. You're, it's a graph, and then that's where the knowledge graphs come in. And I love how you say, like, how do we explain the knowledge graphs to everybody? It's, yeah, it's a mind maps is one way to think about it. And then we start seeing that, uh, first of all, like, we've all had schemas. We've all thought about this stuff, but then uh, the NoSQL movement took the pendulum to one side, and then now we're bringing it back about it. And I love your analogy, your examples. Like data models are important, and one way to explain it is like just look at your org chart. Do you ever think about like no, that org chart is not important. Like that org chart does not provide ROI. What's the ROI? What of is the ROI chart? for that? No, like, imagine you didn't even have one. Like it, hey, you need to know who you report to, who reports, and who to, who to contact, who's related. Like there's so much context in there that you kind of almost take it for granted. This is an important thing. You can't even imagine a world where you wouldn't have that. Mm -hmm. And then we really dive into the EDM council, right? So all, this is incredibly valuable work. It's a nonprofit. So many different large organizations in the world have gotten together to develop DCAM, right? Which is a, fr a big framework that has been heavily involved, informed by all the bank regulations. And then the CDMC, right? This has created a standard to have uh, to repeat all these requirements from all the hy hyperscalers around. Have this information model that really has combined all these existing standards the, from data cataloging governance, like Egeria. DCAT, the data catalog uh, vocabulary from the W3C provenance, uh, and all of this is in RDF and open standards, which effectively is this blueprint of your digital twin that you can go do that provides all that metadata about all this infrastructure that you have within the organization. Um, how do we become aware of these things out there right now? Like, so your 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 recommendations. Let's get trained on cloud solutions, but also realize it's not just being specific on a cloud, but we also think about 
you need to be portable, right? You yes. need to go move around things. So again, more key words here is thinking about interoperability and flexibility, and all this stuff is changing, right? Regulation, your data is changing, your regulations are changing. And uh, when do you start? Start now, there's nothing stopping you from doing this. And the way to start is to really understand your business strategy, understand the business outcomes, your architecture, uh, and this is gonna help you drive understand what is the purpose of all of this, right? Is it is it for regulation? Is it for effective billing, for revenue assurance, right? What Understand that purpose, and the moment you're understanding that business, codify that. This is the beautiful moment to truly have those uh, have it in code such that you can start automating more of this. So to wrap up, we said, what should you automate now? What shouldn't you? Automate now is all the rules, these business logic, right? You can, all these detections that can be done and you can start with simple things like this, regex, and then let her get complicated with fingerprinting. And what you shouldn't be automating is really the semantics, the extracting that knowledge. You need to go talk to people and you need to go figure out uh, what those data models are in people's head, how the business is working. Yes, there are tools to augment you into it to make you more productive, but don't outsource that. You do not want to outsource your understanding of your own organization. Fantastic. How did we do? Anything we missed? That's an amazing summary. You know, I think you that, that was all you. All right, to wrap it up, because we got dinner coming soon, is three questions. What's your advice? Who should we invite next? And what resources do you follow? Well, first of all, yeah, my advice is... Um, very much in line with this, get, get familiar with Knowledge Graph, get familiar with the EDM Council. Love it. Knowledge Graph, EDM Council. Who should invite next? Python String Held. Who? Um, Python String Held. Okay. So. The <laughs> Python String Held? Absolutely. I'll send you the, the spelling. Love it. Okay. Um, and, and what I would recommend is, is his, his book, Data Management at Scale, the second edition that has just recently come out. And I think it's, it really underlines a lot of the stuff we've discussed. And Robert, what resources do you follow? Books, podcasts, newsletters, well, people? I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of Python. I'm, uh, um, I'm a, a big fan of semantic, um, uh, semantic web uh, training as well. So um, I, yeah, these, these kind of uh, resources, I can send you a list of All right. to add to the show. Well, Ben, thank you so much. Just quick, next week, I'm going to be on vacation. I need to take a break. <laughs> but we will actually record. Uh, we'll have a, a Tim and Juan rant yeah. on, on on what's been going on the last We'll do a little months. bonus episode. We'll do a bonus uh, episode. You know. yeah. But with that, Ben, I look forward to it. thank you so much. Cheers. Appreciate thank it. You. Cheers. This is Catalog and Cocktails. A special thanks to Data.World for supporting the show, Carly Berghoff for producing, John Loyans and Brian Jacob for the show music, and thank you to the entire Cataloging Cocktails fan base.